Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business? Trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it? Network? Maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with them. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey man, how's it going? That's yeah, cool. Good. 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 Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. We avoid conflict like the plague. Who wants cake? <laughs> Come on and get it! And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial. But hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group. Because when things get too deep, people drown. Now, you may have enjoyed that, but that is not what we're talking about. Okay? Avoiding conflict ignoring names, skimming the surface of relationships. It looks easy and comfortable, but it is not super. It's what we call pseudo-community. Looks like community, sounds like community, but there's no real connection happening on any deep and personal and life-enriching way. No, what we're talking about here at Grace is true community. This fall, we are inviting ourselves, challenging ourselves to discover the joy and power of true community, of entering into real, lasting, transformative relationships with each other on our campuses, across our campuses, in all the places we live and work and study and play across this city, true community. And so we learned uh, several weeks ago that true community begins when we come together around something or someone bigger than ourselves. And so here at Grace, we are building our community around Jesus Christ and his life-changing message. And so this is a gospel-centered community, a good news community. Then a couple weeks ago, we learned that true community is marked by vulnerability, by a willingness to let people into our lives and the honesty to be real and our true selves with one another. Last week, we learned that the true community is fueled by a spirit of servanthood, the readiness and willingness to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves, to put others' interests ahead of our own, just as Christ has done for us. So today, we're going to add one more to our growing characteristics of true community, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, not only to keep you listening, but because I don't want to scare you away, and you'll find out what I mean. 
A couple things before we uh, go any further, though. First of all, we want to give a a shout-out this morning to our East Lexington campus as they celebrate their grand opening. Can we give it up for them? So those of us in uh, Lexington, Wilmington, Watertown, we're really excited for you guys and trust you have a great, great day. If you happen to be there today and you're checking out uh, Church or Grace Chapel for the first time, uh, we're glad you're there, glad you're with us, and uh, look forward to a great time together today. As long as we're giving shout-outs, can we show a little respect to this guy? Okay, come on. All right. Derek Jeter's in town for his very last baseball game. And uh, I know Yankees, Red Sox fans, we have not had a lot to razz each other about this year. Uh, I think we can all agree that if he's got to have his final game on the road, it might as well be Fenway Park. So, uh, and yes, I did cry the other night when he had his final at-bat at Yankee Stadium. (laughs) And I wasn't just crying because he won the game. I was crying because that era is over, okay? So... Anyway, back to more important things, like community, okay? So let's go again to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is a letter he wrote from jail to the church back in Philippi. It's one of the warmest, most relational letters that he ever wrote. Today, in this passage, we're going to discover, we're going to meet two people who are very important people in Paul's life. We're going to discover why that was the case, what it was that brought them together, and what brings us together in true community. So let's pick up the reading in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but we'll be in verses 19 through 30 if you'd like to follow along. The first person we meet is a man named Timothy. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Then skipping down, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Now, this man, Timothy, shows up several times in Paul's letters and in his ministry. Uh, They first met on Paul's second missionary journey as Paul passed through Timothy's hometown. Now, Timothy had been born into a believing family. His mother was a Christian, and so Timothy apparently had been a Christ follower from, from his early days. But Paul took a liking to this young man. He saw potential in him. And so Paul took Timothy under his wing, recruited him to his ministry team, and uh, over the years, they developed a great sense of partnership in ministry. Timothy was gifted as a teacher and as a pastor. And as he grew in ministry skills, Paul, on several occasions, dispatched Timothy to other cities to go strengthen a church or to straighten out a mess somewhere. But Timothy always managed to find his way back around to his mentor, the Apostle Paul which is what he's done here. He has found Paul in Rome as a prisoner, and so they're together again. But Paul seems a bit conflicted here about what to do with Timothy. Uh, On the one hand, he wants to send Timothy off to Philippi to find out how things are going there with his friends and bring him back a report. At the same time, he really needs Timothy's help and companionship as as a prisoner there in Rome. So he decides to keep Timothy with him a little while longer. But he takes a very different course of action with the second person we're going to meet today. We'll pick up the reading at verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. 
Now, Epaphroditus, we don't know a lot about. This is the only place in Scripture he shows up. Apparently, he was a member of that church in Philippi, a young man probably, who was sent by that congregation to Rome to help Paul while he was in prison. Remember, in those days, uh, if, if you were in prison, you, you, you didn't get three squares a day and colorful clothing to wear around the cell block. It was up to your family and friends to take care of you in prison. Since Paul has no real family to do that, he's relying on friends and fellow church members to care for him. And so that church in Philippi, they couldn't all go, but they asked Epaphroditus, one of their young men, to go to bring a gift and to take care of Paul in prison. So he has these two people with him. But something happened to Epaphroditus on the way, verse 24. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Now, we don't know all the details, but it seems as though Epaphroditus got sick on his way from Philippi to Rome. So sick that, that he nearly died. But, but he pressed through that and got to Rome anyway. And as happy as Paul was to see him, he, as much as he needed his help and his companionship, he decided it was in everybody's best interest for him to send Epaphroditus back home again. Now, this is a good time just to pause and ask ourselves a very important question. Why is this passage here? And that's one of the most important questions you can ask about any Bible passage you're reading. Why is it here? Why did some author, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, choose to write and include these words in what we now call the Scripture? And we certainly have a right to ask that question of this passage because, for one thing, it's, it's rather uninspiring. It's pretty ordinary stuff. Now, in the section right before this one, the one we talked about last week, Paul offers these grand, expansive, eloquent declarations of Christ's incarnation and His exaltation. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, it's profound. And then we come to this passage, and now suddenly he's talking about health reports and travel plans. Hey, uh, the kid got sick, so I'm sending him home again. Can you pick him up at the airport? That's basically what's going on here. It's, it's, like, it's like finding someone's grocery list and trying to preach a sermon from it. <laughs> it's not quite the sublime to the ridiculous, but it is the sublime to the mundane. So why is it here? For another thing, it seems out of place. It was common in those days to include a commendation section in a letter, kind of shout out to your friends and colleagues, but it almost always came at the end of the letter. Paul takes that commendation and he moves it up right smack dab in the middle of the letter. Why? What's going on? We have to believe that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included this section for a reason. It has to tell us something, and the first thing it tells us is that Paul needed people in his life, and so do we. Now, you've probably realized at this point that we are drawing upon some imagery and soundtracks from the 1960s and the 1970s to create a kind of ethos for this Come Together series. That was a time in our nation's history when, when people were coming together in unprecedented ways, 
around causes like civil rights or around personalities like the Beatles? What will in 1964, right at the heart of that era, a, a simple song from a Broadway musical made its way to the top 40 and right into pop culture, just as pop culture was emerging. It was a simple tune sung by a young talent named Barbara Streisand. And with silky voice, she sang, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Well, the song caught on. It became a breakout hit for her and her signature song. I caught her on Jimmy Fallon the other night, 50 years later, and she's talking about this song. She's just re-recorded it in a duet with Stevie Wonder and released it again. Now, what was it about that simple song that, that caught on, that resonated with people then and still resonates today? It's not just her great voice. It's the fact that the song speaks to something deep and true in every human being. We need people. We were made for relationships. We are wired for connection. It is not good for the man to be alone, God said, when he saw Adam by himself in the world. And it's still not good. Imagine waking up on a fine fall day like this and having no one to turn to and say, what a great day to be in New England. Imagine facing some big decision and having no one to turn to for counsel or perspective. Imagine finding yourself in the hospital and no one calls or visits. Imagine checking Facebook and finding you have no friends. <laughs> Imagine sharing a real need with your small group and no one offers to do anything about it. Imagine missing church for three or four Sundays and no one seems to notice. Those things aren't good, are they? They're not pleasant even to think about, let alone to experience, as some of you perhaps have experienced those things. People who need people aren't exactly lucky. They're normal. They're human. And Paul needed people. Paul, the great apostle. Paul, the fearless preacher. Paul, the world traveler, needed people in his life. People with names, not dude and kid and captain, but, but Timothy and Epaphroditus. He names them twice in this letter. He's affirming them as individuals and recognizing the unique contribution each of them have made to his life at a very important time. And they, they were very different people, apparently. Timothy was, was a pastor. He was a teacher. He became a colleague of Paul's in ministry. Paul says... I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. You see, Timothy shared the burden of ministry with Paul. As Paul wrote pastoral letters to churches in trouble, as he prayed for churches around the world one by one, as he strategized the advance of the gospel and the empire, Timothy was there with him, praying, writing, strategizing together. He shared the load. Epaphroditus was an entirely different kind of person. Epaphroditus was a messenger. He was a letter carrier, basically. 
sent from the Philippians to take care of Paul's needs. So when Epaphroditus showed up, he brought some real practical help, like money, like providing food and clothing and a steady supply of papyrus or whatever it was Paul was writing his letters on. Epaphroditus was basically Paul's personal assistant, scheduling appointments, screening visitors, running errands so that Paul's life and work could be more effective. But here's a really interesting thing. The word Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus' work is a word that's used in the Scripture to describe the priestly work of the temple. And so, so Epaphroditus' work, running errands, arranging appointments, preparing meals, it was real ministry. Every bit as much as Timothy's preaching and teaching and praying. And so these two men ministered to Paul. They didn't just hang out and eat chips, as fine as that can be. They actually served him, each one in their own particular ways, in ways that drew them together in community. So they became very special people in his life. And so that's the second thing this passage tells us. First of all, that we need people. But we need people because they, they become ministers of God's grace to us. If you ask God for wisdom or for comfort or for direction or for strength or for encouragement, it's probably going to come to you through a person. Some human being is going to be the channel of grace into your life. And that's what these men were for Paul. And so that's the word we're going to add to our list of characteristics of true community, ministry. The fourth characteristic of true community is ministry. Now, I told you I didn't share that word with you right up front because I didn't want to scare you away. Because some people hear the word ministry and they right away think of people like pastors and missionaries and they say, I don't want to be one of them. Or they think of people who have great Bible knowledge or skills in teaching and leading and counseling and, and they don't have those skills and they feel very inadequate. Or they hear that word ministry and they think that God's going to ask them to do something they really don't want to do. We have all these misunderstandings and apprehensions about that word ministry. But the message of the New Testament and the subtext of this passage is that every believer is called and gifted for ministry. Every human being has been put on this earth to glorify God in a unique way, to participate with His good work in this world. And when we become followers of Jesus Christ, He fills us with His Spirit and gives us unique gifts to teach, serve, counsel, show mercy, organize, administrate, give, all kinds of things. Years ago, I found a definition of ministry that has always stuck with me. It's simple, it's clear, and it works, so here you go. Ministry is being God's person at God's time in the life of another. Ministry is being God's person at God's time in the life of another person. And that's what Timothy and Epaphroditus were to Paul, and that's what we have an opportunity to be to one another. Let me read you a little email I got last Sunday evening from someone who was in church last Sunday morning, and she gave me permission to share this. She writes, Today, after listening to the sermon, I felt moved to reach out to a woman who was sitting next to me, who had been crying. 
I offered her a hug, and then after the service, asked her if she'd like to talk in the coffee shop. She had been trying to reach out and was having trouble connecting with others and had been feeling quite lonely. I asked her if she'd like to go to lunch, and we ended up really connecting, going to a concert and spending the whole day together. I invited her to our life community, and we agreed to get together again. I've made a new friend. Now, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's community. No, that's ministry. That woman was God's person at God's time in the life of that lonely person. That's ministry. Now, notice, there's, there's no Bible teaching going on. There are no strategic leadership decisions being made. There's just a hug and a cup of coffee and some conversation. Now, if you're not a hugger, you can skip that part. <laughs> Just go right to the coffee and the conversation. But anyone can do these things. We all have opportunities. When a family shows up at church and they drop their kids off at Kids Town, and, and you welcome those kids into a colorful room with, with a great big smile on your face. And you get down on the floor or you sit at a table and you, you ask them about their week and you do a color page and you start talking about the Bible story for the day, freeing those parents up to be able to go and worship. You are being God's person at God's time in the life of that family. That's ministry. When someone shows up at church for the very first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, and, and they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, they're not sure how the whole thing works, and you greet them in the parking lot or at the door with a smile, and you help them find their way, or you make sure they have a cup of coffee, you're being God's person at God's time in the life of that person. That's ministry. When you hang out with a middle schooler or a high schooler on a Wednesday night, giving them a chance to take a break, to have some fun, to connect with their Christian friends, and maybe talk about their parents who are driving them crazy, or about the pressure they're feeling at school to do something they don't want to do, you are being God's person at God's time in the life of that teenager. That's ministry. I was speaking this week with a, a guy from Grace here who... Um, who's been involved in ministry for a long time here at Grace. He teaches, uh, he's, he's, a, he's in the building and construction trade professionally, but on Sundays he's a volunteer in Kidstown, teaches second graders. He started doing that when his own kids were that age and he figured somebody better help, so he volunteered for Kidstown. Well, his kids are now in their 20s and he's still teaching second graders. 20-some years, he has been God's person at God's time in the lives of eight and nine-year-olds and their, and their parents. But ministry doesn't just take place at church. It takes place everywhere we go. When, when you invite some new kid to come and sit at your table at school for lunch, when a co-worker lands in the hospital and you pay them a visit, when you bake some brownies for someone who just moved into the apartment next door, when you reach out to someone from a, a different cultural language background than you and you strike up a friendship, that's ministry. God's person, God's time in the life of those people. And you don't need seminary training to do that. You don't need years of discipleship training. You just use the particular gifts that God has given you 
And those are the kinds of things that Timothy and Epaphroditus did for Paul and the kinds of things that lead to true community. So here's our lesson for the day. True community happens when we give ourselves in ministry to one another. True community happens when we give ourselves in ministry to one another. Just as Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus had unique roles to play in Paul's life, we each have unique roles to play in each other's lives. And like the Apostle Paul, right about now, I'm feeling the need for an illustration, for a living illustration of things we're talking about. So I'm going to ask a few members from one of our life communities to come and join me here on the platform for a moment. So uh, can you welcome Micah and Maura and Jimmy to come join me here on the platform? Okay, we're just going to talk for a, a minute here about the, the group you guys are in. So uh, tell us a little bit about your life community, when you meet and what you do and that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. We're uh, been at the life community, my family and I, four years. We meet here uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, there's, uh, we have four children, so they all have a little room to go. We meet here um, from 6.30 to 7.30 uh, at night uh, every Wednesday. The group uh, is very diverse. We have uh, everyone from servicemen, active servicemen, business owners, uh, moms. Uh, we have a missionary family that's part with us. And uh, in the beginning of our season, we usually get together and kind of talk about um, what we're going to study. And then Jimmy and I share the responsibility of leading that study. Okay. Now, one of the things we've been talking about is the idea that everybody has a unique role to play. We each have particular gifts and skills that we bring to our life together. Uh, tell, introduce yourselves again and tell us what each of you do to kind of keep your group going. My name is Maura Ware, and I am in charge of the prayer request for our group. Um, it's a very you know, simple task, but meaningful to the people. Um, I send an email out every week um, just requesting people to pray for the needs of the different members. Um, and then um, I also reach out to the people if they haven't been attending or if I haven't seen them at church or if they're going through a particularly hard time just to let them know that we're thinking about them and, and that we miss them. Okay. Now, I'm actually still reeling from the intro video about the shallow small group. <laughs> um, you know, really the, the things that Maura and other people in our group do for, to, to care for people uh, really form the soul of our group. And it helps that video not to hit too close to home uh -huh. for us. Um, my own role is a little more big picture, and I admit that that can be a little easier in some ways. Um, I help uh, decide, you know, what kind of um, study topic we might have or book of the Bible we might uh, cover for the coming season. If the um, conversation gets a little more difficult or complex, I also do try to offer what I can. Okay. As I said, I help lead. Uh, anything that's, as he said, anything that's tough and complicated, he will do the study on. Um, <laughs> and we share everything. Uh, there's, you know, the group works because somewhere along the year, everyone will do something. Uh, we share even snacks. I mean, we're, we're, there's a schedule for everything, and we have the ability to, everybody's actually doing something throughout the year. Okay. Uh, the other thing we learned is that when we do give ourselves a ministry like that, it brings joy and power to our lives, the lives of people around us. Just share personally a little bit what being a part of this group has meant to you. Sure, yeah. Um, we came to Grace eight years ago, and it was a big church. We got lost um, in the sheer size of it. And then joining a group, the first thing that it did to us, it made us, the, the church really small. All of a sudden, we knew people. We could say hi to people. And the second thing that it did in our family is um, allowed us to have the desire to give back and serve. And we ended up serving in other ministries throughout uh, the church. 
Yeah, this life community, I've made so many friends and um, really made this church smaller, feel smaller to me. Um, when my first time coming to this life community, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what um, what to expect. And I saw people, we prayed together out loud, and it was the first time I'd ever had that experience. And um, I just thought, I want to be able to do that. And, and um, so every every week we pray and um, and through through that experience I learned how to pray with other people and now I do the prayer requests so it's it's quite <laughs> quite a transformation our group is a uh, very welcoming and understanding uh, that at different weeks or seasons in people's lives you're going to be busier and you're going to get overwhelmed so um, it, and it's really our understanding comes from the fact that we're all in that place ourselves um, you know, when I'm driving uh, on Wednesday nights to get there from Cambridge through Route 2, it, it can be very difficult just to even physically get there. And, and honestly, you know, um, in some seasons, um, you know, Thursdays and Tuesdays, you know, they sandwich the Wednesday night with lacrosse practice. And, you know, it's just hard for me to even mentally want to be there at times. And Micah shares that same uh, burden when it's football season. Right, so, um, but I lean more on the other people when it's that time, and they do cover for me. If I'm gonna show up late, uh, or I know it's gonna take a long time for me to get there, I'll still make the effort to show up, even at the end, because it's good to talk with people, um, and it's good to see my family. Very good. Anything else any of you wanna add? Just thank you to Vivian, who um, helps organize everybody, um, sends out emails as well, and just schedules us. So it's just, just such a great combined effort from everybody to make it all work. Well, we're glad. Okay, can we thank these folks for sharing with us? Well, in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity as you leave, if you're not connected to a group like that, to find out about them. As we said, there are folks in our lobbies today uh, representing groups from a variety of towns who meet different nights of the week. You can just walk up and ask some questions. You're not making a commitment. You're just asking a question. Tell me about your group. And we have a rule around here with life communities. If you go the first time and it doesn't click for you, it's okay. Find another one. No one's feelings are hurt. We want you to find a group that, that works for you so you can do that afterwards. But it would not be fair for me to leave this topic without telling you one more thing. One more thing about ministry that Paul hints at in this passage. Ministry involves risk. Verse 29. He says, Welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This young man became so sick on his journey, he nearly died. But he was so determined to get to Paul, to deliver that gift and to deliver help that he pressed on anyway, nearly losing his life in the process. And so it's a living illustration of the principle we talked about last week, the willingness to lower ourselves, to deny ourselves, to give ourselves away in service to others. And so that little closing word reminds us that there is a risk involved in ministry. It inevitably involves some hardship and some heartache. You don't know what sacrifice might be involved. You never know how people are going to respond to your efforts in their lives. You never know if you might get in over your head. There was some risk involved when that woman last Sunday reached out to the woman who was a stranger who was next to her. 
You never know what's going to happen when you hug a New Englander. Just, you know? It could have been very awkward. It could have been off-putting. She could have found herself in over her head. But aren't we glad? She's glad. The other woman's glad. We're all glad that she took that risk. That guy from Grace took a risk 20 years ago when he said, yeah, I'll teach second graders. Aren't we glad he's been doing that for 20 years? I'm glad because uh, one of my boys was in that second grade department, received Christ there, and is following him these many years later. Took a risk for all these folks to rearrange their life schedule and come together week after week, believing that it was going to matter, and as we've heard from them, it does matter. As I read about the Epaphroditus and his, uh, his willingness to risk his life, I couldn't help this week, but think of Dr. Rick Sacra. Maybe you've heard the story on the news, I'm sure. One of the many medical personnel who have uh, gotten sick treating Ebola patients in West Africa. Like Epaphroditus, he nearly died giving himself away in ministry. Uh, he has recovered. He came out of the hospital this week. Um, and what he said was that he has no regrets about what he's done and that as soon as he's able, he's going to go back again. Dr. Saker is a committed Christ follower. And like many of the medical personnel serving there in that part of the world, they are there because of their faith in Christ, believing that it matters. And so there's always some risk involved and some hardship. It's easier and safer not to get involved with people, to keep to ourselves, to, to, to not go deeper. You know, we sang a song a few moments ago, Oceans, you call me out upon the waters. Give me, you, you, you lead me where my trust is without borders. Do we really mean that? Are we really ready to go farther and deeper and wider and closer than ever before? If we are, then there is some risk involved. But it's the only thing that leads to true community. And so you have a chance to take some steps this week. As you leave, you can check out some of those life community options and see if one works for you. Maybe you're sensing a prompting to, to get involved in ministry somewhere around the life of the church. We have openings right now in Kidstown, in student ministries, and on our tech teams. Stop at the information desk, the service network desk, and just say, tell me about places to serve here at Grace. Maybe you're just checking church out for the first time in East Lexington or in any of our campuses. Make a commitment to come back a few more times and begin to find out what it's like to be part of a real community. Philip Yancey says this, the life you clutch, the life you hoard, guard, and play safe with is in the end a life worth little to anybody, including yourself. Only a life given away for love's sake is a life worth living. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of community do you want to be part of? Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, let us bring healing. Where there is doubt, may we be people of faith. Where there is despair, may we bring hope. Where there's darkness, let us bring light. And where there's sadness, may we be people of joy. 
Lord, grant that we would seek not so much to be consoled, but to console. Not to be understood, but to understand. Not to be loved, but to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It's in forgetting ourselves that we find ourselves. It's in forgiving others that we are forgiven. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to new and eternal life. May it be so, Lord. Amen.